I don't know about you, but I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of John this morning. For those of you who haven't been around, we took a break from the Gospel of John for the summer. We went through a few of the Psalms, and last week we just finished up a series on how God has structured his church. But today we are back in John, and we're going to be going through John, Lord willing, all the way to the end of the year. Um, In John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, John gives us the purpose for writing this gospel. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This book, this gospel was written so that you would believe in Jesus Christ and that you would have life in his name. And so if you are here this morning and you're an unbeliever, hear this. This was written in order that you believe in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this was written so that you would continue believing in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of this gospel. And maybe some of you remember that the gospel of John is often split up into two different books. Chapters 1 to 12 are often called the book of signs, where the words and works of Jesus act as signs that point to who he is and what he has come to do. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 8. He claims to be the light of the world, and that those who follow him will not walk in darkness. And then the sign he gave to illustrate this is by giving physical sight to a man born blind. We've already looked at the book of signs, and now we're in chapter 13, which begins the second half, the book of glory, or sometimes called the book of the passion. And what we will see is that John's gospel starts to slow down. Jesus' public ministry has now come to an end, and he focuses all his attention and energy towards his disciples. We see Jesus teaching his disciples in this upper room from chapters 13 to 17. Without explanation, Chapter 13 starts, and we're transported to a room above a house in Jerusalem. And Jesus is there with his 12 disciples. And we read in John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do what I, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples is only found in the Gospel of John. John likes to give his readers things that the other gospel writers don't give. John Calvin, commenting on this, says, While the other gospels show us the body of Jesus, the gospel of John shows us the soul of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus from the outside. In John, we learn more about what's going on inside Jesus. John begins by saying that this was before the feast of the Passover, meaning that it was around the time of the Passover. And this is a significant detail because the Passover was a celebration of God saving his people from judgment. And we also read that Jesus knew that his hour had come, his hour is always in reference to his death in the Gospel of John. And so when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart 
out of this world, it was then that he took the form of a servant and he washed his disciples' feet. This passage is not merely a lesson in humility. We almost immediately associate this passage with humility because Jesus does humble himself in this passage. He definitely does that. But what Jesus is doing here is so much more than just setting an example. His ministry is not only an exemplary ministry, it is a saving ministry. Jesus has come in order to save sinners. And that's what this passage is primarily about. Some have mistaken the application. Uh, There are churches who actually consider foot washing as another ordinance that Jesus is giving to the church, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. But we never find this again in the rest of the New Testament, which means one of two things. Either the disciples were extremely disobedient and they didn't listen to Jesus' words, or that this had a symbolic meaning, that it was pointing to the death of Jesus. And what he was calling them to do is to follow his example in serving others. What Jesus is doing here is enacting a parable. He's teaching his disciples. And in this parable that Jesus acts out, we see three things. What Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has done in us, and what Jesus wants to do through us. Those are the sections for my sermon this morning. What Jesus has done for us, what Jesus does in us, and what Jesus wants to do through us. And the main point, what I hope you see in the text is this. Those who have been washed by Jesus serve one another because of the gospel and his example. Those who have been washed by Jesus serve one another because of the gospel and his example. All right, so let's first look at how this foot washing is a parable of what Jesus has done for us. John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In these verses, we see what motivates Jesus. Think about it. Jesus knows that his hour had come. It's important for us to understand the timeline here. This scene takes place on Thursday night. In fact, chapters 13 to 17 takes place on Thursday night. The next day is Friday, Good Friday. And so in 18 hours or so, Jesus is going to be nailed to a wooden cross. In less than 24 hours, he will be dead. And Jesus knows this. But what's on his mind? His love for his 
disciples. See, whatever is closest to someone's heart is usually made apparent in the last hours of their life. Some people are preoccupied with work and getting their affairs in order. Some people strive to, to check off things on their bucket lists. And here Jesus reveals what is closest to his heart as the cross came near. It was his love for his own that dominated his thinking. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It was the love he had for sinful disciples. I mean, these men did not deserve this love. They didn't earn this love. They were not more faithful than other people. In fact, they're going to both deny and forsake him. And Jesus, knowing that they were going to do this in just a few hours, he did not stop having loving thoughts for his disciples. One of the greatest needs that you and I have is for us to know and believe that Jesus has loved us and continues to love us. Sometimes we struggle with this. Maybe because we're thinking about our own weaknesses and our own failures. We see sin in our lives and we think, well, maybe Jesus doesn't love me anymore. Here's a reminder to you, Christian. Those he loves at first, he loves to the end. If you're a Christian, you can read this verse to say, having loved me, who was in the world, he loved me to the end. There was one in the room who never came to know that Jesus loved him, and that was Judas, the one who would betray him. In verse 2, John tells us that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. But it wasn't just the love that he had for his disciples that motivated him to do what he was going to do. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he knew he was going to be betrayed, but he knew something else. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he had come from God. That's a hint back to the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is co-equal with the Father in majesty, power, and glory. He had come from God and was God. And he knew that he was going back to the Father by way of the cross and his resurrection. And this led him to do what he was going to do in that upper room. John Calvin comments here that Jesus is calm and composed in the upper room. 
He's going to be in agony and, and sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And yet here in the upper room, he is calm. And Calvin says this is because he knows where he came from and he knows where he is going. He knows where he came from and he knows where he is going. And then we are told in verse 4 that Jesus rose from supper. John gives us great details when he describes the foot washing. He says that Jesus rises, then he takes off his outer garment, he wraps a towel around his waist, he pours water into a basin, he gets down on his knees, and he begins to wash their feet. But the point of all of this isn't so that we have details on how to perform a foot washing ceremony. John is pointing to something greater. This is a picture of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse, verses 5 to 11, which talks about Jesus leaving the glories of heaven and then coming down to a low place and then being exalted in glory with the Father. Jesus is actually portraying that here. Look at the text. He rose from supper in verse 4, just like he had risen from his eternal throne. He laid aside his garments, just as he laid aside his glory. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He took the form of a servant and he tied a towel around his waist just as he emptied himself and took the form of a servant and took on our humanity by being born in the likeness of men. And then in verse 5, it says that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, just as in a few hours he would pour out his blood to wash away the sins of those who believe in him. And then finally, in verse 12, it says that he resumed his place. Just as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a parable of what Jesus has done for us in saving us from our sins, in washing away the guilty stain. Jesus, who was in the beginning with God. Jesus, he who was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, who became the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What Jesus is doing here in this upper room is not first and foremost setting an example. He's going to say that he's doing that but he is first and foremost doing this in order to draw people to himself. He's acting out his death. And yet the disciples don't understand. Think about the scene. Jesus has the servant's towel wrapped around himself. Everyone in the room is in shock. The only sound to break the silence was probably the water being poured into the basin. Because culturally, it was the duty of the host to provide a servant who would greet the guests by washing their feet. 
The roads back then weren't paved, and since almost everyone wore sandals, the guests' feet would be very dirty. Since dinner was eaten at this low table, where the guests would lay on their sides and their feet would be extended outward, it was very important that people had their feet washed. But because Jesus borrowed this upper room, there was no servant to greet them. And the disciples were not in the mindset of humbling themselves this way. Luke tells us that they had been arguing with each other about who among them was the greatest. No one was going to back down by washing someone's feet. And so they all reclined at the table with dirty feet. And Jesus noticed the selfishness of the disciples. He heard them arguing about who was the greatest. And at a moment of one of their most sinful displays of weakness, he gives one of the greatest displays of humility and love and service. If you want to know what Jesus is like, this is a great passage to look at. This is what Jesus is like. This is the picture that God wants you to see. He's not only a king. He's not only Lord. He's not only all-powerful. Jesus is a servant of sinners like us. And so Jesus bends down to wash their feet. And in the silence of their shock, Peter looks at his own dirty feet as Jesus is about to wash them. And we don't have to wonder what's on Peter's mind because in Peter-like fashion, words immediately come out of his mouth. In verse 6, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? This is beneath you. And on the one hand, if you think about it, Peter's right. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is the Lord of glory. Doing something like this seems so beneath him. And yet at the same time, Peter thinks that he is too good to stoop that low. Now look at what Jesus says to him. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter didn't understand what Jesus was doing, but Jesus called Peter to submit to him. And that's a powerful challenge for us today because how often does the Lord work in our lives and in our church in ways that we do not understand? But we can't allow what we do not understand to be an excuse to reject what Jesus is doing. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Jesus tells Peter, You may not understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. And yet Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. You'll never do this to me. Peter is so prideful in this moment. He's arguing with Jesus. Whenever you or I push back on things that Jesus says in his word, we're acting just like Peter is right here. 
And look how Jesus gently responds back to Peter. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus says this to every one of us this morning. If you will not be served by me, by my atoning death on the cross, then you have no share with me. This is the core of Christianity. I need Jesus to wash me in order to take part in him. This is a powerful reminder that salvation is based on what Christ has done for you, not what you do for Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We must have Jesus wash us with his precious blood. We need him to sprinkle our hearts clean. I wonder if any of you are acting the same way Peter acted this morning. Do you see your need for Jesus to wash you from the defilement and pollution of your sin? Peter was trying to manipulate Jesus into becoming the Savior that he wanted him to be rather than the Savior that he came to be. Have you embraced the Lord Jesus for the removal of your sin and guilt? Have you trusted in him for forgiveness? Don't be misled into thinking that just because you grew up in a Christian family or that you attend a church or that you do good things, that you are saved, that you're okay. You need to come to Jesus for cleansing because your sin has separated you from God. And you cannot save yourself. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You must be washed clean by the blood of Christ. You must turn from your sin and believe in him. Friends, this is serious. The reason this is so serious is because of what Jesus says in verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. John's gospel is full of things like this when Jesus speaks on a spiritual level using normal physical language. When Jesus says, if I don't wash you, he's not talking about washing dirt off your feet. He's talking about washing away the sin in your life, in your heart. And he does this when you put your trust and faith in him. If Jesus doesn't wash you, you have no share with him. If Jesus doesn't wash you, then you have no hope 
of salvation. You must turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. Think about this. The only one who ever deserved to be served was Jesus. And yet he said this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus teaches us here what he has come to do for us. This is a parable about what Jesus has done for us, and it's also a parable about what Jesus does in us. Because Peter starts to kind of understand what Jesus is saying here, but then he goes too far. He goes to the other extreme. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Oh, Peter. Instead of telling Jesus what he'll never do, he now tells Jesus what to do. Not just my feet, Jesus, but wash all of me. Now look how Jesus responds to Peter. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Not all are clean. Judas is not clean. He will betray Jesus. But what is Jesus saying here by saying, you are clean except for your feet? Well, think about it. If you're invited to dinner somewhere, you would typically take a bath and get ready before you went. And as you walk towards that person's house, your feet would get dusty and dirty. But your body would stay clean. And so you wouldn't need to take another bath once you got to that person's house. You would just need to clean your feet. And this is a practical illustration of Christian salvation. When Jesus washes you in that all-forever cleansing of his blood and the forgiveness of your sins, you are clean. Clean. But as you travel this sin filled, self-centered, Satan-infiltrated world, your feet get dirty. You don't lose your salvation. You just need your feet cleaned. By saying you are clean, he's telling Peter, I've already redeemed you. Peter was already forgiven. What Jesus was going to do on the cross was retrospectively applied to Peter and the other disciples, just like it was to David and to Moses and Abraham and everybody who believed in the old covenant. But there is also a continual need for cleansing. Because as we walk through this world, there is never a day that goes by in which we don't sin. That's why the blood of Jesus matters so much to us. In the Christian life, we are continually being sanctified by the same gospel, by the same sacrifice, by the same blood of Jesus. Every day of our life, we are needing Jesus to cleanse us from the sin that entangles us. And so what Jesus is showing us here is that what he came to do is for both justification and sanctification. To take away our sin forever 
but also to continue cleansing us. What Jesus does in us. This parable is about what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has done in us, and lastly, what he wants to do through us. Having washed his disciples' feet in order to symbolize the way that he will cleanse them by his death on the cross, Jesus then instructs them to serve one another as he has served them. Look at verses 12 to 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He wants his disciples to understand the significance of what he has done for them spiritually and for them to see the great need that they have for him to redeem them, to wash them, to cleanse them. And then for them to make the connection between what he has done and what they are to do. Because as our Savior, Jesus gives us the blessing of salvation. And yet as our example, Jesus tells us how we can be blessed by living a transformed life. What Jesus is trying to do through them, he's trying to create out of his disciples servants. We shouldn't only go to Christ to be washed and cleansed and served by him, but also take up the mind of Christ and say, how can I serve? And then when we have served, say, how can I keep on serving? Yes, the gospel is what saves us, but the gospel is also what fuels us to live a different, transformed life and applying Jesus' teaching here. We should be thinking about how to love and serve one another in order to build one another up in Christ. We're called to take the lowest place, to serve rather than be served. And yet, if we're honest, we all in some ways resist serving. Why? Because by nature, we say, me first. We want to be served rather than to serve. And you can spiritualize whatever you want and say, you know, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the way in which you test out if you are truly a servant of Jesus Christ is the way that you're willing to put on the towel for other people. Jesus says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What Jesus is saying here, if you call me teacher, then you won't disagree with my teaching. If you call me Lord, then you won't disobey my commands. 
He continues in verse 16 saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is the master, and we are his servants. Jesus is the one who sends, and we are his messengers. And yet he is the one who serves us. And so to refuse to serve is to exalt yourself above the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I've given you an example, and so live that way. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, how are we doing in listening to the teachings of Jesus? How are we doing in obeying his commands? There are two ways to live. For yourself or in self-sacrifice and love for others. Me first or Jesus first. He's given us the model for the way that we should treat others. And with his help, we should extend the same grace that he has shown us. And that really comes to bear when we do this for people who annoy us. Or people we just don't want to serve. We feel like they don't deserve to be served by us. Well, in this passage, Jesus is washing the feet of disciples who are going to deny and forsake him. And he washes the feet of the one who's going to betray him. He washed the dirty feet of Judas, who will eventually leave that room and dirty up his feet again. So we should be willing to serve anyone without making any exceptions. And think about it. If every Christian in this room, in this church, and the other churches around us applied this and lived this out, what would the church look like to the world around us? The Lamb of God, the maker of wine from water, the healer of the lame, the source of living water, the light of the world, the giver of sight to the blind, the good shepherd, the raiser of the dead. He is also a foot washer, a servant, and he calls us to follow his example. And he says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He doesn't say, blessed are you if you know these things. Blessing does not come merely from knowing or even understanding. It comes from obeying, putting what we understand into practice. And Jesus says that if we do this, we will be blessed. And so as we go from here this morning, who will you be focused on? The needy or yourself? 
We need to take up the towel in our marriages, in our homes, and in our fellowship with others in the church. May we look around and say, how can I serve these people who have also been washed by that same blood that I've been washed by? How can I bend down and serve them for their good? Those who wipe down tables and sweep floors and change diapers and clean toilets for the church are doing what Christ has told his disciples to do. Brothers and sisters, continue on in your humble service, relying on the gospel, fixing your eyes on Jesus for your cleansing and example. And as you go about your life this week, what will your life say to people? Jesus first or me first? Those who have been washed by Jesus serve one another because of the gospel and his example. May the Lord make us servants like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for these truths. Jesus, we thank you for being the Savior that we need, the Savior who took the lowest place in order to wash us through your death on the cross. If there's anyone here who has not believed in you, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. Help them to see that if they are not washed, they have no share with you. Save them. Wash away their sin. We also pray that you would give us grace. Give us cleansing from remaining sin. Make us a people that want to be like you who want to serve rather than be served. Cleanse us from selfishness that keeps us from doing that. Give us love for one another as you have loved us. We pray these things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.